What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me for weekly conversations on purpose with women who have found it and are impacting their worlds with it. I've been so driven to get to being a director and managing teams and one of the top villas and engaged. And I got there and I remember just almost like looking around on top of the mountain and being like, is this it? Like, is is this really it? Is this what I was striving for? And just had this like, almost this pit in my stomach. Of, this is really not fulfilling me. This is not truly making me happy. I am very excited to be speaking with Aggie Heal today. Aggie is the author of Generation Panic, an extremely helpful and relatable guide to managing anxiety, which, given the past two years, is a book that I think absolutely everyone could benefit from. Aggie left a career in financial services recruitment after she started having panic attacks. At first, she thought she just had too much on her plate. Work was fast-paced and she was planning her wedding. But upon returning to work after her honeymoon, those feelings hadn't changed. So she set off to figure out what would truly make her happy and found her purpose in coaching and by writing Generation Panic. And we have a giveaway. If you would like to win your own copy of Generation Panic, head to my Instagram profile. The details are all there. You'll need to caption one of the images in Generation Panic and post this to your own Instagram stories. The giveaway is open to all listeners, but unfortunately, if you are a listener outside of Malaysia, I can only offer you a Kindle or Audible edition of Generation Panic. I've got three copies up for grabs, so go on, head to my Instagram profile, throw your hat in the ring, maybe one of them will be yours. Aggie and I talk about why millennials are struggling so much with anxiety, why we need to really celebrate milestones rather than just looking for the next box to tick. But to begin with, we talk about the moment when Aggie first started having panic attacks. I don't think I had realized what things had been building up. Like I completely missed all these mega red flags that were like desperately waving in front of me. And so when I had my first panic attack, I felt completely blindsided because I almost didn't realize where it had come from. I'd, I'd missed those things. Um... And I remember when I first had it, I was like, what on earth is going on? You know, like I I just, I just didn't have a concept what, what was happening in my body. I didn't have the terminology. um, And so that was very scary. That was very real for me. I've been so driven to get to being a director and managing teams and one of the top villas and engaged. And I got there and I remember just almost like looking around on top of the mountain and being like, is this it? Like, is, is this really it? Is this what I was striving for? And I think in, internally, I just had this, like, almost this pit in my stomach of, this is really not fulfilling me. This is not truly making me happy. And particularly with the, like, physical reaction that I was having on top of it, it was a big wake-up call. And it was it was very hard to swallow that because, it almost kind of went against everything that I believed or expected or thought was the way that it was and really challenged that. So yeah, it was very hard times. And then what did you do um, when you recognized that there was a problem, that something had to give? What was your next step? So 
When it was first happening to me, I was engaged to be married and I just thought it was the stress of the wedding and there was a lot upcoming and I thought, oh, maybe it's just, this is what's, what's kind of going on. Whereas actually on retrospect, that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And so, um, in the lead up to the wedding, I did, like, I completely stripped things back. Like I canceled all social diary. I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking. I ate really cleanly, not on like a wedding diet or anything, just like so that my body wasn't fighting all these additional things that I needed to put in my body, um, trying to get good sleep, you know, like real fundamentals of how to take care of yourself. Um, and I was working with a coach as well as that t- at that time. But I remember after the wedding and getting back to reality you know like after our honeymoon I was like great I'm gonna be like I just needed a break exactly and then I got back and I was like ah it's still there like this is not something that was just wedding related this was something far bigger and so that really started me on this journey of exploring like where am I what am I wanting to do where where am I heading and so that almost kind of snowballed from there I just remember feeling so lonely and like, where am I finding this information and just desperate to find the thing that was going to make me feel myself again. And I think that in itself, yeah, I just felt very lonely. Um, And so this is what Generation Panic for me is all about, is just tooling up those people and giving them access to to the tools that they need. It's just an access thing. It's nothing else. Yes, absolutely. I agree. It's an access thing. And I think that while the last 18 months have really helped to destigmatize anxiety and make people feel more comfortable about accessing mental health support or treatment, that feels like quite a recent shift in the culture to me. So when you decided to write Generation Panic, which is a extremely helpful toolkit of over a hundred ways to manage anxiety, how did you first go about defining Generation Panic or GPers as you call them? So for me, when I when I first wrote the book, which was five years ago now, I Generation Panic for me were people in their 20s and 30s who were just in this kind of juggling act phase when there's so much going on in that, you know, people, like you said, you might be bringing kids into the world or having children and raising them, or you might be very single, you might be divorced, you might be finding your way in your career, you might be incredibly established. It's like there's so much flux and change that seems to happen in those two years with the additional pressure of got to keep up and our social media has got to look great and we've got to physically look great and we've got to be drinking green juice and meditating and t- I don't know there's just so much overwhelm that I think comes into that time um and I think particularly people in their 20s and 30s from who I've met are really ambitious you know there's like a real drive in them and for me that's who generation panic is but almost my naivety was that I wrote the book at that time in my life. I was in my mid-20s when this was all occurring for me and I had almost like a limited view of those 20 years that I felt like were this this time of flux. But actually from the last two years, everyone's part of Generation Panic. It's it's not really age-specific. Um, everyone can use these tools. Everyone is struggling with anxiety, I believe, on some level. It's just how well they're handling it. So 
I kind of like to think that I've almost like opened up the arms of Generation Panic and, and welcomed anyone who wants to come and join join the crew. Yes, that's true. Everyone is feeling anxious right now. It's not just Generation Panic. But why? Why are we so anxious? You, you write in your book, I spent years feeling like I needed to prove who I was, not only to myself, but also to everyone around me. And I can completely resonate with that. And I think that many people, not just GPers would. So what is it about society and our lifestyles that is creating such extraordinary stress and this need to present in a certain way? I think we could have this conversation for hours, you know, days, weeks of, of what kind of feeds into that. Um, it is that period of flux. And additionally, I think we're, we're fueled by questions and judgments of other people. So everything's like, hey, where, what's going on with your work? And so there's almost like there's a reaction in us like, oh, I must say something that's impressive. I can't just say like, I'm coasting or... I've had a really chilled day. I actually went to the beach today and did nothing because I had the time. It's like we're expecting things to be busy. We're expecting things to be progressing. We're wanting people to get to the next level. And we're we're always like putting out those goals, you know, like even on social media, you look around like, oh, I climbed to the top of this mountain or I got to this weight goal or I've got this promotion at work, whatever it might be. And that's celebrated, which it should be. But it's like these massive milestones that become like so ingrained, so fundamental that almost like the little things, I don't know, I think that's where the like almost the anxiety sweet spot is, is like how we operate in between those things that fuel it. Um, I think everyone's just kind of almost all in a goldfish bowl. Yes, exactly. And that goldfish bowl analogy, the fact that we're constantly being observed because of social media and therefore constantly trying to project a certain kind of lifestyle or or feed. And then, as you say, we put so much emphasis on the big milestones that we forget that these are called milestones or achievements for a reason, right? They are rare and they should be celebrated when, when and if they do come about. But yet we expect to keep hitting these constantly, you know, every month, every year. And you meet somebody new and one of the first things they'll ask you is, what do you do? Exactly. So then there's almost like the initial, I mean, even as you say that to me, I'm like, <gasps> and like leap forward, you know, there's like, there's got to be, I can't just be like, do you know what I do? I do sweet FA, you know, like I just, that they'd be like, what, you know, what are you giving me that's showing that there's movement? Um, yeah. So it, it creates this, yeah, this little perfect bubble of anxiety, I think. We obviously like to talk about purpose on this podcast um, and how people find it. And you were saying just then that, you know, you didn't feel fulfilled. You got to the top of the mountain and you realized it wasn't what you'd hoped. So you were searching for something and it kind of feels like the search for purpose is characteristic of GPs. What do you think's in that? I think absolutely. I think, again, if we take GPs as like a broader thing than what how I first conceptualized it, is that I think everyone's looking for purpose. You know, everyone's wanting to find their why and their reason for being here and really what it's all about. You know, like when you strip everything back and 
take away all these, you know, judgments of what you think you should be doing, like you as an individual, what, what's really important. And so I think that, yes, GPs are absolutely striving for that. And where we get confused is when we're trying to like live out someone else's or um, like define success perhaps by another, you know, someone else's description or definition of that. And so as much as we can kind of recenter or look inwards and find what it is for us without being like, oh, would other people like that? Or is that what, is that what Elena would want? Or is this how she's doing it? And instead cut out the noise, like what's really making me happy. Um, and for me, purpose is like, it's, it's a real feeling. It's like how you feel in your body. I think people feel when they're on purpose. Um, but for me personally, I mean, it's like an ongoing <laughs> exploration. I don't think it's like a final point we get to. It's just something you can always be chipping away at and almost like an ice block, you know, like just tweaking and finding finding that sculpture what makes you feel on purpose in your work I truly feel on purpose now like with generation panic out there in the world and I'm now a leadership coach and facilitator and run run one-on-one programs or group sessions group workshops assessments um and I absolutely love it you know for me being able to I think I said at the beginning like give access to these kinds of things to make people's lives easier, like happier to make them operate at the best possible level is kind of what it's all about for me. So from here, it's just like tweaking and refining and making that bigger and better and stripping it back when need be and thinking about the small things. I don't know. It's just like a constant (laughs) like ebb and flow of how to, but I think broadly speaking, I really do feel on purpose. And you mentioned your your boys at the beginning, but we, ha- we have young kids. And to me, that's like the kind of like core, the heartbeat of all of that purpose. So um, I feel very fortunate. And yeah, but you've caught me on a good day. I mean, there's days when it's really messy and I'm, I don't know, I'll be like thrashing it out with my coach being like, ah, where, where are we? What are we doing? I shouldn't say that. Not where are we? Where am I? What am I? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. No, I, I totally agree. And I know this is a bit of a cliche, but there is something about becoming a parent. Your worldview shifts because all of a sudden what you do with your life, how you spend your time becomes so much more important. Yeah. And for me, certainly, um, becoming a parent it changed a lot of things about how I viewed the world and what I wanted out of it and and what I wanted for my family. Um, You're also a neuro-linguistic NLP practitioner. Can you just tell me what that is? Because I've heard this acronym many times and I still don't really know what it means. So NLP is essentially looking at the connections we make in our brain to process the experiences that we have. And so where NLP becomes really powerful is that it's looking at patterns of behaviors and the beliefs that run those behaviors. And if there's like a need to, to change them. So if something's not working for you, NLP gives you the how-tos to change them. Does that make sense? Yeah, 
So I think then this is a nice moment to talk about uh, your book, Generation Panic, and also the toolkit that you lay out in the book. Because you talk about the fact that investing your time in these habits is a daily practice. Um, and it's it's like working out at the gym, you know, you need to, uh, I think a misconception that I certainly had about, uh, therapy. So I use, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques is that there would, you know, I would do it for six months, seven months, and then I would be fine. Like it was like a course of medication. But what I didn't realize is actually, this is a daily practice and you have to commit to these, small exercises, I guess, because if you don't, then things do start slipping. And I, I feel that, but it's also almost like another thing that I need to do, right? It's another box on the list that is already very long for most GPs. So how can we make this achievable or accessible? You talk about so many good points there, because I think uh, you talked about, I had exactly the same outlook, like, great, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to be fixed. And then I can go on with my life. And it's really not like that. Um, you know, like when you take antibiotics and they say, take it when you're feeling horrendous. And then even when you're feeling better, you continue the course. It's, it's no different to that because if we just, for example, have a really challenging time at work or feeling particularly anxious about something, if we just deal with that and then forget about it, we're just going to create that loop. We'll we'll find ourselves back in that situation facing something really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, two days, two weeks, two years later, whatever it might be. And so I think the biggest problem that we face currently is time. You know, we, we do not have enough time. Um, I actually read this morning, Adam Grant, who's a wonderful writer and philosopher, um, was talking about resilience. And it's not about a, like, a lack of enthusiasm for anything. It's a lack of time and almost like the enthusiasm bubbles up and over. But it's that we don't have enough physical time to be able to manage all these things. However, the way that I like to think about it is if we don't take care of ourselves and like go to the mental gym every day or go to the, you know, work on these things on a daily basis, you're going to find yourself anxious. You're going to find yourself burnt out. And where's that going to get you? So it might feel like um, a time commitment now, but it's going to save you in the long haul. Because if those tools are implemented daily and you're then like heading out into the world on your front foot, I mean, that's just a no-brainer for me anyway. And just to add to that, I think maybe there's also a misconception that um, this needs to take time. And it really doesn't. Like, you know, I don't know what your um, daily schedule looks like, but a lot of people go to the gym for like, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, whatever. These techniques, I mean, some of them you can do in like three seconds. Once you once you've kind of anchored something, or once you've got a way of doing something, or a resource that you can call upon, it's it's not necessarily taking you two hours every morning. It can be like, oh, like just take a moment to reset, and then what you know, I don't know, what state do I want to be going into that? That can take three seconds. I think. Um... It can just be something like 10 to 15 minutes a 
a day, whether that's maybe journaling as part of the daily routine or maybe it's some of the breathing techniques that you talk about in your book um, or knowing, being able to anticipate when you're going into a situation that might trigger something, then you can prepare yourself by doing some of those things. But then I guess the flip side is if you don't invest those, let's say 10 minutes a day in doing these things, the issue could be that you'll then have a panic attack or have a more serious, more serious mental health crisis. And then that takes much more time to get out of. It's like weight loss, right? If you, if you eat healthily or you watch your diet every day, it's much easier to maintain your weight. But if you've already put on 20 kilos, then it's really difficult to lose that. Yes. But I also want to be conscious of, for your listeners, is that if we take that kind of diet metaphor in relation to anxiety, you know, if you're, if you're on like a general healthy eating plan, if you have like a cheat meal or like a chocolate bar, things aren't going to go horribly wrong. So it's like building enough of a foundation and enough of a way of doing something. It doesn't matter if you miss a day. It doesn't matter if you just take a week out or whatever, as long as your foundations of how you're managing anxiety are really strong then you kind of like, you even know where center is, like, you know what you're trying to aim for. Um, so I, yeah, I don't want to add to the pressure that everyone must take like, I don't know, an hour every day to focus on their, their mental health, but it's building the muscle muscle of having the discipline to create time and space for this, because it's just, it's so important. Like you take five minutes to make your green juice in the morning. Why would you not put that time into something equally, if not more important. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. I agree. And <laughs> cheat meals or days off are fine. Like not everything's going to come crumbling down. We don't want to create just another thing to be anxious about. Um, another thing that seems to be common to, to GPs and, and possibly the kinds of clients you work with is perfectionism and control. And I, and I think control and perfectionism can sometimes be related, but how do we build the resilience to cope with those moments when life doesn't go our way and when things become out of our control? Great question, because I think you're right. Perfectionism and control are huge parts of this. And, and ultimately anxiety for me is that desire to control things that are upcoming and, and kind of that worry of what's coming down the track. Um, there's no one way. And I think that's obviously I'm biased, but the beauty of generation panic is that it's providing over a hundred different tools that the reader can decide what's going to work best for them. So even if I, um, kind of put out, I don't know, the top five tips or whatever it might be, they, they would change or for different people, they would, different things would resonate. Um, however, there's like uh, three kind of key ways that I think about it is that one, there's an immediate um, tools, like what you actually can and want or need to do in a panic attack. Then there's almost like the short term of what can you then put in place immediately to look after yourself, but also on a long term, you know, where, where can you, I don't know, you mentioned, we've obviously talked about purpose, but like that's a kind of more long-term exploration or something yeah. else to do. I think 
people dealing with uncertainty has been huge over the last year. And there's a whole host of things that people can try, like bringing it right down to today, becoming trying to become very present, gratitude, you know, focusing on the positives, focusing on what you can control. Um, I mean, you could pick any of the techniques and apply them to uncertainty and dealing with with what we're facing at the moment, not being able to control things. I want to just talk about boundaries for a second, because that was something that um, I was thinking of when you were talking about radiators and drainers um, and how, well, firstly, if you can just explain what radiators and drainers are. And then secondly, how do you set boundaries with the drainers? Because sometimes they're not people that you can cut out of your life easily. So radiators and drainers are very simply how we can categorize people around us. And so drainers are the people who suck out of our our energy. You know, they drain our resources. And we all know that feeling. Like when we've come away from some sort of interaction and we just feel exhausted or flat or like it's been one-sided. And that can happen, I think, we're, we're allowing space for that to happen with our best friends. You know, we're not going to be up and have those down days all the time. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we can see patterns with some people that we interact with that actually is just not that positive for you. It kind of has a negative impact and it drains you in some way. Um, kind of irrelevant of how they're feeling on, on the interaction. Whereas radiators are just that, you know, those people who like build you up and make you feel great and are kind of sunny. They radiate that goodness and you often leave feeling positive and high and like things are easier. And so one of the chapters in the book is about radiators and drainers and really understanding like where people lie within that. So yeah, even like groups of people can have like a different impact. So for example, you might have, I don't know, a group of uni friends or a group of work friends that actually is like, I don't know, maybe there's a bit of a like competitive edge or it leaves you feeling not great or you're trying to be something that you're not in that group. And so just being aware, first of all, of who those friends are who build you up and who are the ones who kind of suck it out a little bit is kind of key because even just having that knowledge is quite powerful, I think, Um, and then it's how to deal with it, deal with it. And there can be all sorts of things that play into this, you know, like family dynamics or work dynamics. But ultimately, if you're spending time with people that are not positive for you, that is something that should be looked at, regardless of who those people are or what you what relationship you should have with them, you know just because you've been friends with someone since the age of three doesn't mean you have to be best friends again today. So is that relationship as positive as it could be? Um, and then being able to kind of obviously communicate that, which can be hard, but it's um, short-term versus long-term, isn't it? You know, short-term, that might be difficult, but long-term, if you're hanging out with people that are building you up and like cheerleading you forward, that is just going to have a much more positive effect on your life. What about those uh, drainers who might be, for example, family members or a boss? How do you how do you put in place a boundary there? Because you you have to accept that those people are going to be in your life. I mean, I suppose with a boss, you could decide to leave a job. But how do you communicate 
a boundary with somebody who's a drainer? So I would argue that everything can be changed, um, either in terms of you obviously have the choice to be able to leave. If you have a toxic manager, for example, I would strongly urge you to find someone who's going to build you up. You know, we've all worked for managers that have very different leadership styles and you can see the impact on you personally, like of how you operate. Um, and kind of almost going back to NLP, a big part of NLP is that you, you can't ultimately change other people and their behavior, but what you can shift is your response. So how you're reacting to those situations can be different. For me, a big part of all of this, and again, anxiety is, is probably a lack of boundaries as in, even understanding what you want and then being able to communicate that clearly is critical. So for example, if you have a family member that it feels like it's a draining relationship, getting clear on what that is, how it affects you, then also what boundaries could be in place that would work better for you, not for them, for you. And then how you can communicate that is kind of almost like an exploration in itself. I'm very biased but I think honesty goes a very long way and actually if you if you for example I don't know you have a a auntie that's not great for you then being able to understand that and saying this isn't working for me and this is what I need from our relationship and this is how I'd love to interact with you or this is what is really important to me and let me just tell you how I want to kind of go through the next two weeks or whatever it might be um, it's all about communication. Yeah. And I suppose if you make that clear and it's not respected or you're told you're behaving, you're being difficult, you're being childish, then I suppose the ball is in your court as to whether or not you want to put up a firmer boundary. Absolutely. And, and just think about that feedback in itself. You know, that's, is that radiating or draining feedback? You know, mm. is that it's, it's difficult because there's an element you have to be open to receive feedback and like there's a way that the world works and what is acceptable and what isn't. But ultimately I think people in their like true heart of hearts, like their gut, they really know when things are working for them or not. It's just whether they have the confidence to be able to change it or communicate what they do need. Um, and so also just additionally to that, if you were going into those conversations, read other chapters in the book. So there'll be other ways to like boost yourself before the conversation or put yourself in the best state to think about these things. Because um, so much of this is how confident we're feeling so that when you're having these conversations, then they're not conflicting. They're, they're factual. They're not taking, you know, take the emotion out of it. Yeah, actually, that's a good point that you make about um, some of the chapters in the book and some of the work in the book. It's, it's not just about sort of managing personal anxiety. You know, this is also useful if you had a big presentation, you were trying to negotiate a pay rise for yourself or, you know, in a professional sense, there's a lot of, ways in which you can use some of those, that toolkit um, to make yourself feel more com confident when you're advocating for yourself in, um, in any way. I would argue that every tool in the book is non-age specific and is applicable for any situation or any challenge that anyone is facing. You know, it's not, it's not like 
chapter one is just focused in the boardroom and chapter two is just focused about family Christmas or whatever it might be, um, you know, they can be applied to anything at any time. And the beauty is that the reader gets to decide what works best for them and then go and apply it, then go and do it. Yes, definitely. So everybody should have a copy of it. And if you want to get your hands on a copy, then enter the giveaway that's on my Instagram and you can win one. I've got three copies of Generation Panic up for grabs and you can use the tools in the book, whether you're negotiating a family Christmas or you're negotiating a promotion. I just want to go back now to the transition you made after deciding that the career you were in and we're doing so well in, wasn't for you. How did you then find your way into coaching? How did you make that leap? So after, as mentioned, after I got uh, got married and I kind of got back to the office and I was like, ha, huh, this is like a little bit bigger than I realized. Um, I really started to think like, is this really where I want to be? Like, is this bringing out the best in me? Is this what I want to be doing. And I think fundamentally there were parts of it that I really loved and I was good at. And so that kind of almost sucked me in. It made me feel good. It made me feel safe. I was tick tick boxing, you know, I was doing that achieving. But again, like if I, when I really kind of like distilled it down, there was something in me that just, it, it wasn't a hundred percent. And I thought I'm going to get caught in these mat leaves and just be still working for these, these people that, you know, ultimately it's just not, not where I want to be. I don't respect it enough. Did you feel undervalued at work? No, I was incredibly valued. I was always to the next level. I mean, I just had had such an incredible career, but I just thought, I I just can't believe that this is it. Like I really can't, am I 10 years from now still going to be working in financial services recruitment? I'd kind of like done what I'd needed to do. And I, at that moment, I was like, I don't know, this is just not, I didn't like the person that I was becoming. I was super stressed. It almost, I don't know, the recruitment's very fast and it's constantly churning. So like every week, your stats go back to zero. Every month, your stats go back to zero every year. You know, like it's just this hamster wheel. And I was like, this is not I feel like I can do it. I've proved that I can do it, but I, I mean, long-term, this is not, I don't want to be on this hamster wheel with these people. You know, this is, this is not what I want. Anyway, so a year after we got married, I finally got to this point, a couple of things had happened. I just thought this is enough is enough. Like I need to be brave. I need to take a jump. I'd been seeing a coach and working out like where I wanted to go. And I just didn't know. So I, was like, right, I'm going to, this was about, um, I think it was April, May that I quit. Additionally, I had had both my grandmothers had died very close together. And I think that just was a real wake up call of, you know, almost that purpose, that life piece. It really made me question things. Um, sorry, I'm going into a very long story. No, now. no, no, go for it. <laughs> and just, just shut me up when, when it's, um, but I was like, right, I'm just going to take the rest of the year off worst comes to work, I, worse, I could walk into another recruitment job tomorrow. Like that's not a problem. I could find a role if I needed to, but I was lucky I had saved up some money and I thought, I'm just going to take this year to explore me and like what I want to do and what's going to make me happy. And so I went out there, I met with every single friend who worked in like any sort of career or industry that I was interested in. And like, 
asked them about their day-to-day and I did every course that you can possibly think of like I did um I totally got the bug I did like coding financial statements I did yoga ceramics (laughs) my husband and I went motorcycling across the Himalayas it was like a rock and roll few months um but in that time I did a coaching for business course with City University and I remember sitting there and it was almost like locks on a like a bank cell that all just like they all kind of clicked into place and I remember sitting there just thinking this is amazing like I absolutely love this and this is almost the part of the recruitment that I love so much and that nurturing either people through a candidate process or the the team members that I was managing and I just thought I cannot believe that you can get paid for this I've got to go and like explore this more and so then went on and trained um, over the next, well, I mean, training continues to today, but um, yeah, have now since gone on and trained as a coactive coach. I'm now a master NLP practitioner. I run assessments. I've got heart math, a number of different things and um, set up my own business in the UK, which was crazy and super exciting. And then we moved to Singapore four years ago now and have have set up here. So work with clients across Asia and back in Europe and run one-on-one programs or group facilitations. And I love it. I really love it. I feel very fortunate that I get to do something that I enjoy so much. So yes, in summary, took a leap of faith, went and explored, lucky I landed. And here I am, what is it now, seven years later? Yeah. I mean, well, congratulations and well done you for, first of all, making that jump and then also finding something that you really, really love. And I think that's, that's not easy, right? What would your advice be for someone who was feeling the way you were feeling in financial services recruitment or whatever industry it is and wanted a change but was too scared to, to make that jump? Um, I guess there's also financial implications that we need to be aware of not everyone can afford to leave their jobs um but what can you what can you do to give yourself the courage i guess to take the leap uh two main things is one save up the money if you can and if you can't find a way to make it work so you can try things in your evenings or do side hustles on the side to explore or meet people and understand what they're all about. You know, those things aren't, um, are you're able to do that alongside income. You know, and I hear a lot of people who do that. Like I was talking to someone the other day who works in a career that he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't mind, it's fine, but it gives him the ability to do his side hustle. Like what he apps, it gives him the freedom to be able to do what's really important. And the, the second point that... I think is really important if you are considering a change and looking to have that courage is to build a support network around you that works for you. So whether that's um, cheerleaders, you know, in your group who are like behind you um, or people who just really get your decision and are going to back you um, work with a coach. Again, I'm super biased, but find someone who can, um, really be that non-judgmental sounding board for you. And so that when you're making those decisions, you feel very strong going out because it's hard. Like there was a lot of times 
particularly again talking about kind of judgments of other people but they would go what you quit like you were doing so well you were flying why on earth would you do that or they just couldn't get their head around it and that really made me question yeah my identity and why I was doing this and it was really hard for me to relearn that and like who I was at the center of it rather than having work define me Um, And so there were some very hard times in there. And I was very lucky that um, I had an incredibly supportive husband and I was working with a phenomenal coach and I had some really good people around me, friends and family who were just backing me so that even on those days when I questioned what on earth have I done, um, I, I was able to do it. And the third point actually, which is um, advice from a friend of mine was write down all the reasons you're resigning at that time because it's right. very easy to be like oh I should have just stuck you know I was doing x y and z so well or I was getting paid x and actually when you really connect with the reasons why you left it's easier so having that to hand is very I mean I had like four pages of <laughs> point you know point number 46 the reason why this is not working for me yeah I think that's helpful you know if you then when you start to doubt your decision you can look back and and read it and think you know actually this wasn't flippant decision I thought about this and all of these reasons are still present so yeah so knowing what you know now and I think particularly through all of the coaching training you've done, if you could go back and coach yourself, the younger um, Aggie at the beginning, well, when you were first having this panic attack, what would you say to her? You're okay. Like, we'll get through this and go by generation panic. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, And also, I mean, at that time, it was so hard. I just remember it being so difficult like on a daily on a minute by minute basis it was really challenging and actually I have learned so much from that time about myself and other people or how I operate you know I wouldn't have this book if I hadn't have gone through that I wouldn't have the career that I now have I wouldn't have a level of sympathy for people who might have be struggling with mental health you know I didn't really understand it before I'd been through it so even those like darkest times have given me such like light and power and confidence that, um, yeah, in many ways, only obviously in retrospect, is it easy to look back and think I was meant, that was meant to happen to me. Um, so wherever you are, however hard it is, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. This is all part of it. Yeah. I remember, you know, when I was younger and, being anxious about something. I think it was university work related. And my mom saying to me, you know, unfortunately, the only way past these hard moments is through them. And you will get there and it will be tough and you will learn something, but that's the only way you do it. Mm -hmm. So what's next for you? Is there another book in the works? Um, not as yet. I, um, I don't know. I always have ideas circulating, but one of the chapters in the book is about celebration. And Mm -hmm. so often 
GP like generation panickers are like, great, I've done that. Okay, on to the on to the next thing, on to the next, on to the next. And so I'm trying to be very mindful or like conscious of pausing and enjoying this and um building building the business here in Singapore, which is going well and basically mm-hmm. I don't know, just I always want to kind of um enjoy it. Yeah, and, so you should. Um, so I mean who knows what's next? Life will throw something at me, I'm sure. Yeah, it has a way of doing that when you're least <laughs> yeah. expecting it. Exactly. Um, well, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your book um, because it's hugely useful. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Well, thank you so much for having me on and um, helping me share the word of, of Generation Panic. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Aggie Heal. And remember, if you want to be in to win a copy of Generation Panic, then head to my Instagram. The link is in the show notes and all of the details of how to win are in there. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye.